pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. Well, I grew up in Pennsylvania. I moved to Michigan halfway through high school. So upon graduation, as a northerner headed down to a southern university, I knew that my mission was clear. Um, I had a mission to raise awareness at the University of Florida that, uh, about the inferiority of country music. Um, I was convinced of it heading down there. It wasn't easy, though. It was a daunting task. My friends, my roommates very much loved their Tim McGraw and Garth Brooks, and they didn't appreciate it so much when I would claim that I could write a song just like that on the spot and take out my guitar and play four chords and just rhyme a few random lines about pickup trucks and dirt roads and fishing. Um, but then it happened. My junior year, I think it was, uh, it started with the Rascal Flat song, and I accidentally liked it. Um, actually, I was crying when I listened to it. Um, and my roommates just kind of swooped in, and they're like, hey, listen to this Brad Paisley song. Oh, listen to this Dirks Bentley song. And then before you knew it, I had country music on my iPod, back when iPods were a thing. Um, and so, bottom line is I failed at my mission as I headed down to the University of Florida. Instead of the University of Florida becoming more like me, like I hoped, I had become more like the people around me. And that's funny when it comes to musical preferences, but a lot more serious when it comes to matters of eternal significance, right? And truly, when it's all said and done for each of us at the end of our days, either the world around us will have become more like us, or we will have become more like the world. That's one of the dynamics at play in our scripture text today. Isaiah 2, would you open there with me? Isaiah chapter 2. We started last week a new series, working through the book of Isaiah. We've been calling this series Judgment and Hope, because we saw last week in Pastor Craig's first sermon in the series, and we will continue to see throughout the series that Isaiah keeps doing this over and over again. He juxtaposes right next to each other these pictures of the most glorious hope and the most daunting pictures of judgment. It'll be no different this week in chapter 2, but this week the contrast really boils down to whether God's people are going to become like the nations around them or whether they're going to live up to their calling to... Make, help the nations around them conform to their image as God's people. So we're going to read this text as we go, since it's a longer chapter. Uh, but let me just show you first how this passage works, so that we know where we're going today. If the beginning of the passage is at the top, end of the passage is at the bottom, present time, future time, the passage starts in the future, the distant future actually, with this glorious picture of what's to come in verses 1 through 5. Then, in verses 6 through 11... Isaiah kind of backpedals to the present day and talks about the present situation. And then in the third and final section of the text, he talks about this day that's coming in between the two. Um, so chronologically, that's how we're going to be working. And fortunately, Isaiah gives us a takeaway, a clear takeaway at the end of each of these three sections. And so we'll see those as we go. 
So let's begin at the end uh, with glory and light. This picture in verses 1 through 5. See if you see that as we read, or as I read. Uh, Follow along with me. Chapter 2 starts, The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. I don't know about you, but I want to be there for that future day. Amen? That picture that Isaiah gives us. It's a beautiful one. We often talk, people throughout our world talk about wanting to be on the right side of history. Well, this is where history is headed, to this picture that we just read. And in verse 2 and through verse 4, we see that it's such an exclusive yet inclusive picture. It's a picture of beauty and goodness. It's a picture of peace and glory. So much so that it exceeds the highest hopes of any transcendentalist or utopianist that's ever written. Let's let's unfold a couple of the pieces of it just in a brief minute. Uh, I said it's exclusive because did you notice there's only one place of worship and one God who's being worshipped there and his house is lifted up above all other places of worship. Yet, at the same time, it's inclusive in another sense. What I mean by that is that all the nations are there. This isn't just a local deity being worshipped by one specific people group. All the nations are coming together to worship the one true God. What else? There's unprecedented peace taking place here. And this is, again, this goes beyond what the utopianists could picture because when you read the utopian writers that have come in the last couple centuries, the greatest that their minds could even conceive of is that the world will keep raging in war, but that maybe one enclave of people, one small group could carve out uh, society together off the grid in which they lived at peace with one another and rose above it all. Isaiah's vision is much more audacious than that. He sees the whole world, all the nations, coming together despite their clashing customs and values and traditions, yet without war. Not only is there no war, they can't even conceive of war, so much so that they've even stopped training soldiers for war. Did you notice that in verse 4? A future war is so inconceivable that training soldiers would be pointless. And even if they changed their minds and the nations decided to go to war with one another, they wouldn't have any weapons to do it with. Because in verse 4 it says that they had piled up their war machines and had them melted down and beaten into farm equipment. This, friends, is the vision that God is moving history toward. It's a vision of all the nations worshiping God in true harmony with one another. We're not taking a straight path to get there, very clearly, as we can see all around us when we turn on the news. 
But in the last chapter of everything, when all is said and done, we will be vindicated as God's people so thoroughly that all the nations will be coming to learn about the God that we worship today. Is your heart made glad by that vision? Let's just soak in it for a moment. Just that picture. Maybe you even close your eyes if you want. The day that's coming when all of our striving, all of the contention of today will just be done. It'll be in the past. Everybody around us will want to know God more. The tensions and wars that we experience now will just be distant memories. Distant memories of the kind that we think of when we think back on the days of landlines and depositing checks at the bank and carrying cash and waiting 10 minutes to get online with your dial-up modem to AOL. We'll talk about this in the same way, these days of striving in war. We'll say, do you remember how backward we were back then? And we'll think back in the same way to the days when people said we were narrow-minded and bigoted for worshiping one God. It'll be in the past. I don't know about you. Does this seem too good to be true a little bit? I know if I'm honest... It does seem that way a little bit for me, just based on our present experience. It seems like, how could this be? How could we get from where we are to this? And actually, I think Isaiah's original readers might have had the same reaction because they were living in a day like we are in which they would say, hey, we look around us and the nations are showing no worship, no, no interest in worshiping our God. Uh, every nation seems like it's at war with some other nation. How can we get from here to there? So I think this is one of those texts in which we can find our present day experience to align pretty closely in some ways with what the original readers would have been experiencing when they read it, when they heard it. They'd be thinking, this is so foreign to our experience. I don't even know, I don't even have categories for how I would apply this to my life here and now today. Fortunately, Isaiah concludes this section by telling us what to do with this here now today. Verse 5, right? He says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In other words, he's saying, if, if Isaiah was right about verses 2 through 4 in this vision of the future, what's coming, that means that some from all the nations, even the most pagan nations on earth, will one day be worshiping together at the mountain of God. That means people from Tyre and Sidon and Assyria and the most pagan nations in Isaiah's day. That means some of our neighbors from Deerfield and Highland Park and Northbrook today. And Isaiah is saying, if that's true about our future and where we're headed in the future, then shouldn't we as God's people be walking in that same light today? That's the call to conclude this section. So, Let me be clear, this isn't a call to try to create a utopian society here and now today. That would be a misreading of this text. Utopian societies have been tried, you know, from time to time over the generations. They've never worked, but most importantly, the reason for that is because that's not the instruction in verse 5, is to try to create a utopian world. But at the same time, the opposite approach, to read this and say, well, God's going to bring that about in the future, there's nothing we can do about it now, would be to ignore the call in verse 5 that in light of what's been seen in verses 2 through 4, we're called to walk in the light of the Lord. So let's get practical for a moment. You say, well, I don't know. Walk in the light of the Lord. What would that even mean in my experience right now? Let me just give us three ideas for what that could mean based on 
verses 2 through 4, and what we see there. Number one, what if we proclaimed the exclusivity of Christ? So in the text, we saw that this final vision of peace isn't because we finally figured out how to tolerate, live, live amongst each other uh, and tolerate each other's beliefs. The unity that comes in the future is one in which we're all united in worshiping the same God. And so what we can do about that now to live in the light is to boldly, lovingly proclaim what is the most loving thing that we can proclaim, that there is one God and that there is one way to be saved. On the other side of that coin, though, another thing we can do to live in the light now is to demonstrate the inclusivity of his people. If on that day all nations will be coming together to worship the one true God in one place in perfect harmony, what if our Sunday morning worship, what if our congregations reflected that? We're a demonstrable picture of that unity and diversity that will be true in the kingdom in the age to come. And finally, working for peace. We saw that in the days that come, people won't resort to violence to get their way. And so, in our day, maybe what it means for us as a church is that we don't resort to violence to get our way. So far as to say, as Paul says in the New Testament, that we would rather be wronged than to resort to violence to get what we want. Those are three ways that I see in verses 2 through 4 that we could live out this call in verse 5 to walk in the light of the Lord here now today. It's an awesome picture we have in verses 1 through 5. And I can imagine, possibly, that Isaiah's readers would have been saying, man, this is so amazing, this future that's in store for us ahead. If only the nations around us would get their act together and join us in worshiping the one true God, then we could usher in this era now. But God's response to them is, well, no. The problem isn't that the nations around you haven't gotten their act together and lived up to verses 1 through 5. The problem is you and that you haven't lived up to your calling in verses 1 through 5. And that's where we're going next in the second section of this text. Move to verses 6 through 11. Isaiah moves from his future picture into his own present day and talks about a particular rejection meaning that God is going to particularly reject his people. Listen for that message from God as I read verses 6 through 11. For you have rejected your people, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low, and the lofty pride of men shall be humbled, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. So reminder, verses 1 through 5 are about the future. Verses 6 through 11 are about now, Isaiah's now. Verses 1 through 5 will come to pass, that's for sure, in the future. But here we see God saying, right now, I have rejected you, my people. The question is why? why. Why would God reject his people? 
I think verses 6 through 8 give us the answer. If you scan those three verses, verses 6 through 8, and look for a common thread in the charges that are being brought against the people of Israel, specifically Judah, uh, I think the common thread is this. They have become like the other nations around them. They've become like the other nations around them. They're supposed to be helping the other nations be conformed to them as God's people, the way they were called to in verses 1 through 5, but instead, they're becoming like the other nations. It's a list of things that are in opposition to God's law, like Pastor Craig preached back in chapter 1. They're not supposed to be a people who engage in sorcery or who amass silver and gold or who accumulate chariots or who have images, graven images that they worship, but it says that Israel is teeming with these things. The land is filled with them. Why? How? I think verse 6 tells us. It's because they've seen it modeled in the nations around them. Do you see that in verse 6? They're looking to the east and imitating those nations, but the Philistines that they're imitating are from the west. In other words, they're looking all around them. It's like their eyes are scanning the horizon to find another idol that they can worship, someone else that they can imitate in their ways. But I'm not sure that even by talking about imitation that we've gotten to the root of the issue here. I'm not sure that's as deep as it goes. Like, why are they imitating the nations around them? Why do they want to worship in the ways the other nations worship and live in the ways the other nations live? I think for that answer, we look to verses 9 through 11. If you take another minute and just scan verses 9 through 11 and see what's the common theme there, I think what you'll see is that Isaiah is emphasizing the root of all this being their pride. That's why I said this man needs to be humbled, and the haughty looks of man shall be brought low, the lofty pride of men shall be humbled. In other words, this imitation of the nations around Israel comes from, it seems, a desire to be exalted in the sight of those other nations. In other words, they're hoping that by imitating the nations around them and adopting their best practices, that the nations around them will look at them, as the people of Israel or Judah, and say, oh, those people are really sophisticated. Those people really have it together. Those people, they're wealthy. And those people are impressive uh, and refined and modern, right? So I think it's important we stop right there and just ask ourselves, what, to what degree is that us? As God's people, to what degree is that us as North Suburban Church? To what degree have we bought into some of those same patterns of looking to the nations around us, imitating them so that they will think that we're impressive? We might think in the context of a congregational meeting because that's where we come together as a congregation to set a course for our future. When we come to those meetings and the leaders come, having prayed and thought through a vision and congregation, we come and uh, bring our own thoughts to the table. To what degree are our desires for the future of our church founded on, or driven by what God has revealed in his word? And to what degree... Are they founded on us scanning the horizon to see what best practices we can imitate from the world of business, the world of psychology, or the world of nonprofits and parachurch ministries and civic organizations? Right? Now, hear me clearly. I'm, I'm not at all saying 
that there's nothing we can learn from the world. In fact, all throughout the history of God's people, God has instructed his people using the nations around them. He does the same today. All I'm saying is that if our legitimate learning from the world and the business world and the nonprofit world and the world of psychology, if our legitimate learning spills over into becoming the sort of thing in which that's guiding our practices, if it ever spills over to the point where our elder meetings become like corporate board meetings and our congregational meetings become like city hall meetings and our um, budgets become like North Shore budgets and our life groups become like self-help groups, if that ever comes to pass in the life of our church here at North Suburban Church, then we've fallen into the same trap that God's people did back at the time when Isaiah wrote Isaiah 2. Friends, our goal is not for our neighbors to think that we're slick or clever or sophisticated or refined or impressive. Our goal is not to improve Christianity's PR so that we'll rise a little bit in the opinion polls. Our goal is to lift up the one true God on his holy mountain and for us to fade into the background as we do. How do we do that? Well, I think just as the first section ended with a clear takeaway in verse 5, this section also ends with a pretty clear takeaway in verses 10 and 11. How do we lift up the one true God? The call in verses 10 to 11 is to fall on our faces in humility. You see that there in verse 10, enter into the rock, hide in the dust. I'd love to camp out here for a moment just on this idea of falling on our faces in humility before God. Um, But actually, this is a major theme of chapters 1 through 5. We've already touched on it last week. Pastor Craig's going to touch on it even more next week, this theme of pride versus humility. And so I am just going to leave this here and just, just by asking us just to let it sink in and contemplate that when we realize we've been imitating the world around us in hopes that our status will be elevated, the call from God is to fall on our faces in humility. That's the answer. More on that in the weeks to come. We've gotten through the first 11 verses, first two sections of the text. Uh, there's been a lot that Isaiah has hit us with here in these first 11 verses. Um, you with me to continue one more section here? Opening our hearts to what God has for us. Let's orient ourselves to where we are in the text. Verse 11 ended with, The Lord alone will be exalted in that day, which of course raises the question, What day? What day does Isaiah have in mind? And that's where he goes in this third section of the text. It's a day that's in between, right? It's, it's before the distant future he talked about in verses 1 through 5, but it's a day that's still coming when he talks about the present in verses 6 through 11. It's an in-between day. It's a day between this one and that. It's a day between the distant future when things will be grand and glorious and the present in which God's people are experiencing particular rejection. It's a time where we're actually going to see that there's comprehensive judgment coming, not just on God's people, but on the nations more generally. Would you look for that there and and follow along with me as I read the last section of our text, verses 12 through 22. Isaiah says, For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. 
against all the cedars of Lebanon, lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains, and against all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, and against every fortified wall, against all the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away. And people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they made for themselves to worship to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? So there's a lot there. Isaiah basically says, let me tell you more about the day that I mentioned back in verse 11. It's a future day, but it's before the latter days that I spoke of in verses 1 through 5. It's not just a day of special, specific rejection of God's people, but it's a day of more comprehensive judgment, so much so that even the products, the cultural products of the nations are falling under God's judgment here. Did you see that? Take a look at, uh, starting in verse 12, what gets talked about as falling under God's judgment. We've got cedars of Lebanon and oaks of Bashan. We've got mountains and hills. We've got towers and walls. We've got the ships of Tarshish, all falling under God's judgment. What do those all have in common? They're tall things, for one, right? What does God say about these tall things? He says in verse 12 that he has a day against them. They are lifted up now, but he's going to bring them low. So it's not just people that are in God's crosshairs here. It's actually the products of the nations. Now, listen, I'm not tall, so this doesn't offend me at all, like it may offend some of you. What is going on here? Like, could it... Is God can't really just be issuing judgment on things just because they're tall, right? No, he's not. Take a look at verse 12. Right in the middle, I think, gives us the key to what is really going on here. That middle clause in verse 12, against all that is proud and lofty. That's the problem here. <clears throat> verse 17 confirms it. Haughtiness and pride are at the root of what's going on here. In other words, the um, oaks of Bashan... The cedars of Lebanon, the ships of Tarshish, they're not going to be judged because the wood that they're made of is somehow evil or because all tall things are inherently bad. The reason they're going to be judged is because they are sources of pride. They are things that people um, put their trust in for security. They are things that nations point to as evidence of their corporate strength. So to just use one of the examples given here, the ships of Tarshish. Let's talk about that. So what Isaiah is saying about the ships of Tarshish, nothing inherently wrong with a ship, right? What he's saying about the ships of Tarshish is, hey, the people of Tarshish are looking at themselves, puffing up their chests, saying, look at us, we're the greatest because we built this great fleet of ships. Surely now we are going to be safe. Surely now we are going to be the envy of the nations around us. And Isaiah says, well, in that case... The Lord has a day against the ships of Tarshish. They're high with their tall masts, but they will be brought low. 
Does that make sense what's going on here in verses 12 through 18? There's nothing inherently wrong with these things in themselves, but the Lord has a day against them because they are sources of pride. So that's an easy study to do, relatively speaking, to figure out what Isaiah was talking about in his day and what's the common thread. What's a little bit more tricky is to think about our present day and ask the question, what are those things in our present day, the cultural products even, that God has a day against today, that he would say it's lofty right now, but it will be brought low. Things we'd be thinking about that um, are things that people trust in for protection instead of God. Things that nations point to as sources of their strength and puff themselves up. What are those things today that God would say today that he has a day against that he will bring down? I think if you're like me, your mind's racing with them right now. Examples abound in our world around us. We have all sorts of things we do this well. But I do think that there's one particular construction product, project at our southern border that fits the bill. Now hear me out on this. Okay. Is it tall? Yes, our president says it's not going to be just a great wall. It's going to be a great, great wall. Is it supposed to be a source of pride? Yes. On campaign, our president says this is going to be something that we can be proud of, an achievement like we haven't had here in America in a long time. Is it supposed to be a place where people put their hope for security? Yes. That's the whole narrative, right? That there's these dangerous people who are trying to flood in from our south, and a wall is the answer that will keep us safe, right? Check, check, check. Fits the bill. Um, And so we have to say that if God has a day against the cedars of Lebanon, if God has a day against the ships of Tarshish, then we have to say that God has a day against the southern border wall. Now, I know I just stepped into something. So let me just hang with me here before you get too upset. Let's think through this, okay? There's a few objections you might have, and I'm going to address those in just a moment. But let me just think. If you're feeling upset right now, I understand it. But let's just think about the situation. Right now, if I'm feeling upset, why I'm feeling upset is because my pastor just got up in the pulpit and preached, looked at a text that said, the Lord has a day against tall things that people trust in for their security, and then said, the Lord has a day against the border wall. My pastor said, the Lord has a day against the border wall in application of a text that literally says in verse 15, the Lord has a day against every fortified wall. So if I'm upset, I need to think to myself, has my imagination been shaped more by cable news or has my imagination been shaped more by Isaiah 2 and the rest of the word of God? I have to ask that question, right? Now hear me on a couple of objections because I think the objections you have will help me clear up some things that I want to make sure I'm not misheard as saying here. Two potential objections. One, there's nothing wrong with building a wall. What's wrong with a wall? And I would say, exactly, true. That's the point. That's the point Isaiah is making. There's nothing wrong with a wall. There's nothing wrong with a tree in the forest of Lebanon, right? It's just a tree. There's nothing wrong with a ship. What's wrong with a ship? There's nothing inherently wrong with that. There's nothing inherently wrong with a wall. What's wrong with it is, like we said, that it is a source of pride for people, that people are trusting in it for protection. In fact, 
if we flipped forward 58 chapters, we'd see in Isaiah 60, in another picture he gives of New Jerusalem, guess what's there? The ships of Tarshish, the cedars of Lebanon. God is not anti-trees or ships or walls, right? They will be in the New Jerusalem. It's just that they are going to be totally different than what they are now, and they're going to be totally transformed into some different purposes than what they are used for now, right? So theologians have conjectured how that happens, how it goes from things that are being used for pride now to being things that the same items are being used for God's glory in New Jerusalem. What's going to happen in between? What happens during this judgment as God refines these cultural products? How do they get remade for use in New Jerusalem? And they have some ideas that I think are compelling. We don't really know. Maybe the ships of Tarshish, instead of being used for war, will be used as places of rest. Maybe Nuclear warheads will be hollowed out and used as play areas in the New Jerusalem, right? Maybe the southern border wall will end up being a climbing wall where people of all nations come and climb to help each other climb to the top. Who knows? There's nothing wrong with the wall, though. You're right. There's everything wrong with trusting in it for our security. Another potential objection. This America is not a theocracy. The nation needs to protect itself. And again, I'd say... True, nations have a right to protect themselves. True, we're not a theocracy. Whether or not there should be a southern border wall, I haven't said anything about that today, and that's not my place to say anything about that from this text. That's not what we're talking about here, right? Whether there should be a southern border wall depends on a whole variety of factors about what it's for, um, how much it costs, how effective it's going to be, all sorts of things that we have no place getting into from this text. I said nothing about that. I'm asking the question this morning to God's people specifically, not to America in general, to God's people specifically, where have we put our hope and trust? What do we take pride in? What do we point to as our source of strength? If the answer to any of those questions is anything other than God and God alone, we might find ourselves among those in verses 19 through 21 who are scrambling for cover when the Lord comes and makes himself known. If our hope, if our trust for security, if our pride is in the southern border wall or anything else, our 401ks, our property valuations, our legal protections, our network, uh, our social network at our, at our, in, our, in our place of employment, if our hope is in anything else for our future, Isaiah warns us this morning about what's to come. And I love the sharp point he puts on the end of it in verse 22. Remember that the problem throughout here has been human pride. Look at what Isaiah says in verse 22. He gives us one final action step. He says, Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? In other words, we think we're great, but we have breath in our nostrils. In other words, if just the right combination of elements from the periodic table doesn't come through two holes in our face on a regular basis, we drop dead. Just think about the last few weeks at our church. All of us almost have been sick. Um, And why? Because little microscopic things finding their way through holes in our face were able to immobilize us for days at a time. My family was, right? And Isaiah is saying, so even if if, if even the greatest human beings, those that we most put on the pedestal as if they're gods, If even the greatest human beings are just one breath away from extinction, why are we so in awe of human beings who are so fragile and dependent and helpless? Why do we puff ourselves up so much? It's a humbling question there to finish the passage. 
So our big idea comes from that and synthesizes with the takeaways from the first two points. With humility, let us exalt the Lord alone until the day when all nations will exalt the Lord alone. With humility, not wanting to exalt ourselves, let us exalt the Lord alone until the day when all nations will join us in exalting the Lord alone. With this big idea, we come full circle from where we started at the beginning with my country music story, right? With the question, who's becoming more like whom? Are the nations becoming more like us from having interacted with us, that they are increasingly exalting the Lord alone? Or is our presence among the nations leading us to increasingly imitate them and exalting ourselves and lifting ourselves up like the world has always done? You know, the church around the world is growing. But I wonder, I wondered as I was preparing this this week, how much it's true that the church in the West seems to be declining in some ways, at least numerically, because we've increasingly imitated the nations around us, the ways of the people around us in terms of pride, specifically, and self-exaltation. We do well to remember, as we read Isaiah 2, that we're no different from God's people back then, We are all prone to want to imitate the nations around us in our pride, to put our trust somewhere other than in the one true God. And what we need is to be humbled by him, maybe through suffering, definitely through repentance, so that we can be made ready for that glorious vision laid out in verses 1 through 5, the day that's coming when all nations will worship him together in unity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word that penetrates our hearts, goes down to the deepest parts of our being, even separating bone from marrow. Lord, I've put my trust for the future in a million things besides you. I repent of that, I confess it, and to the extent that that's been true of us as a church here at North Sub, We ask your forgiveness and intend to walk a new way to the extent that's been true of your people. All over the world, we ask that you would usher in a new movement, a new era in which we, your people, would trust in you and exalt you alone. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand. Let's reaffirm our trust in Christ alone. Hear our cry.